Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we will be discussing the deeper mystical connection between many of the world's religions. I'm joined today by our guest, Reverend Paul John Roach. Paul John Roach is a native of Wales of the United Kingdom. He was ordained at Unity Ministerial School in Kansas City, Missouri in 1988 and served as senior minister at Unity of Fort Worth for 30 years. He has served on several boards and teams for the Unity movement, including the board for Unity World Headquarters. Paul is also the host of the World Spirituality Podcast, which is available on all of the major podcast platforms. Paul is a poet and author of the book we're going to be discussing today, Unity and World Religions. You can find out more about Paul at his website, pauljohnroach.com. You can also find him on Facebook at Paul John Roach. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, Reverend Roach. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the show. Great to be here. Thank you so much, Laurel. So before we dive into our dialogue about the unity of world's religions, let's begin with a moment of contemplation. So let's just bring our attention to this moment. Let's let go of whatever happened earlier today and any concerns or thoughts about what might happen later on and just be here right now in this moment. Let's bring our attention to our bodies in space and just feel our body, whatever we're doing, whether we're standing or walking or driving, sitting, let's bring our attention to our body and in particular to the surfaces that are supporting our weight, just feeling Where are our our feet? What part of our weight is supported in the chair if we're sitting? And let's bring our attention to the breath. Just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale. And exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling the warm air flowing out. And then continuing to follow our breath as we rest here. Here's something to contemplate. A teaching from Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour. This is from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Goodness is innate to the soul. Forget trying to be good. That's like trying to be alive. Instead, put your focus on being authentic. Be true to your divine self. How? Be lovingly aware of your divine nature. Let it express in all that you do. Do your own work 
and be attentive to your soul's joy. Let joy, the soul's delight, be your compass. If you lose touch with your bliss, it is time to recalibrate, time to rechart your course. If you lose touch with your bliss, it is time to recalibrate, time to rechart your course. Oh. So once again, Paul John Roach, welcome back to the Yoga Hour. The last time you were on the program was quite a while ago, back in 2011, and you shared poetry and the mysticism that connects the practices and philosophy of yoga with the New Thought teachings. And I'm, I'm really delighted to have you on the show today to talk about your book, Unity in World Religions. And I wanted to note that Yogacharya O'Brien did write a blurb for your book, and here it is. At once personal, practical, and profound, this distilled view of the world's religions through the unity lens is engaging. The global spiritual vision that emerges shines forth as the light of wholeness, revealing the way to meet the pressing challenges of our time. That's pretty cool. Meeting the present pressing challenges of our time. <laughs> so you're... <laughs> Your podcast, World Spirituality, has been focused on our spiritual connectedness, our oneness, despite what religion we practice. On your website, you write, the natural world is one vast, interconnected web, and the same is true of the processes and natural wisdom within our own bodies, minds, and spirit. And of course, this is the basics of yoga teachings as well. So let's talk about the book. What inspired you to write this book at this time? Well, you know, I've been um, teaching and studying these themes for you know, decades now. Way before I became a unity minister, I've been fascinated with the spiritual path and um, especially the mystical path. And I thought, you know, when I retired, I, it'd be cool if I put down all these thoughts and ideas that I have and all these experiences I've had in a book because, uh, you know, I'm no longer teaching in a ministry it would be nice to have a book that enshrined all my thoughts. And, um, and I thought that no book like this exists in unity or, or in new thought in general right now. It, it fills a niche um, that could be helpful for people. So uh, as a result of that, I, I, you know, and COVID helped, right? Because, uh, you know, I was stuck at home for a long time and could dedicate a, a lot of time to, to this project. And right. uh, lo and behold, here it is, you know, so... Um, that's basically how it happened. It, it was, uh, uh, and it's not meant to be a um, intellectual tome. You know, it, it goes into detail about religions, but its main purpose is to share experience um, mm -hmm. and and help people connect to um, their own innate knowledge. So it's um, it, it's a workbook. It's a it's a textbook to a degree, but it's also an experiential book, I think, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and that's what makes it um, valuable, I believe. Well, I, I would uh, just say that it's um, it's very informative, but also very accessible. I found it very accessible and engaging. There's a, you know, because I think you bring a lot of your own, you know, history and background to it. I found it very right. engaging. So yeah, thank um, you. you. You use the term and actually I use the term in the introduction of new thought. So and unity is considered one of the new thought religions. So what does this term new thought mean? 
I don't think anybody really knows. In the, <laughs> oh, good. As, I thought it was just do, me. <laughs> you know, it's, broad, it's broad enough that it can encompass many different shades of meaning. Let's put it like that. But it, it did come out, uh, out of the 19th century, you know, mental healing movement and scientific uh, looking, uh, a scientific way of looking at religion, Christian science, etc. Um, the idea that your mind is crucially important, you know, change your mind, change your life. And of course, Hinduism talks about this too. The consciousness is pivotal. So, you know, you can have a whole new life if you decide to change your understanding about something or your consciousness about something. It can be new. Behold, I make all things new, says the cosmic Christ, right, in Revelation. And we have that capability too, you know, to create a new new life by changing our thinking. So it's a new thought. I'm having a new thought. I'm not stuck in the old ways of thinking. Um, and it's new every day, right? Even if you have been practicing for years, when you, when you come to your own spiritual awareness, it's new every day, right? Every time you invoke the arm, as you just did, and enter into that moment, it's, it's only happening in the now. So it's always new. Um, some people like to say new thought, ancient wisdom, because it's not just new in the, in the sense of 19th and 20th centuries and now 21st century. It's also very ancient knowledge, and, and I like that too. So it, it's it's always new, right? And it has been for thousands of years. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. that's, that's basically my understanding what new thought is. Oh, that's great. Thank you. That's it's very helpful uh, for me to uh, place the term because I have used it quite often and I was never quite sure, you know, what that right, meant. Exactly. Yeah. You have been a unity minister for many years. For those listeners who aren't familiar with unity, would you just give us a little bit of background about it, about the history of unity and, and what attracted you to it? Well, unity came out, as I mentioned earlier, out of the 19th century interest in mental healing, uh, people like Phineas Parkus, Quimby, um, and then that morphed into Christian science and religious science and, and, and unity. And there was also the influence of uh, the transcendentalists and, and of other religions, actually. Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, the co-founders of unity, were very interested in Buddhism and Hinduism and esoteric traditions, all, all the time, though, being based in in christianity right and and not just the religion about jesus but the true religion of jesus which there's a difference right um the, the going back as, as fillmore called it charles fillmore said primitive christianity getting back to basics mm -hmm. um so so unity is a very liberal open-minded uh, movement we don't call ourselves a denomination um we see commonalities the, the very name unity gives a clue doesn't it we see the oneness within everything we're very open to other religions. Um, we are Christ-based, you know, in the sense that we talk about the divine as the Christ, but we can also be called the Buddha, um, the, the Atman, whatever. You know, it's it's the same. It's just different terms. So uh, it's been going now, what, 130 years, something like that. We have a big prayer ministry called Silent Unity. Our headquarters are in Kansas City, Missouri, in, in, in a place called Unity Village. It's a... Uh, 1400 acres beautiful place to visit um if you would like to they hold many retreats and uh it, there's a golf course and nature trails it's just gorgeous so so um how did i get into unity i came back from india in my 20s and um went to a a, a place called the festival of mind body and spirit in earl's court in london 
And I was attracted to the uh, the Rajneesh stall because uh, it was, you know, full of Indian costumes and, and noise and chanting and everything. But right next to it was the little quiet unity booth and uh, with some books and a little lady at the back. And, and for some reason, I was attracted to the calm in there. And uh, my, my, who became, my girlfriend, who later became my, my first wife, my late wife, um, she, uh, she'd been to a couple of unity churches in, in America. And uh, she, we met in India and, and we were in London at that time. And um, she said, yeah, check it out. And, and that's how it began. So I didn't give up my interest in Hinduism. I'm still uh, consider myself a Hindu um, in many ways, but uh, I find that they're, they're not mutually uh, incompatible. You know, they, they speak to the same truth. Yeah. Isn't that amazing that this whole branch of your life kind of came from the fact that these two booths were right next to each, right next it's to true. each other? You know? it's true. I mean, if it if you know if if the Unity booth had been I don't know across the way, you might never you know might never have never happened, seen it. Right? You know, it just is, yeah. that's I, I love that. That's really great. I did want to mention that um, that uh, Anne Hay is one of the assistant producers who did the help me do the preparation for this interview. Uh, found a wonderful quote from one of the teachers in our Kriya Yoga lineage, Swami Sri Yukteswar, who wrote in the introduction to his book, and the name of his book was The Holy Science, and here's the quote, the purpose of this book is to show as clearly as possible that there is an essential unity in all religions, that there is no difference in the truths inculcated by the various faiths, that there is but one method by which the world, both external and internal, has evolved, and that there is but one goal admitted by all scriptures. So anyway, I just thought it's That's great. You know, that could have been a unity, could have been a unity saying, right? You know, and what I love about Yogananda too, who was in the lineage with Sri Yogeshwar, right? Um, right. That he um, he mentions Christianity and the Bible so many times in in autobiography of a yogi. And that's one of the things that really attracted me to that book. Actually, was how he blended Hindu Hindu truth and philosophy with biblical truth and philosophy, and and I love that because you know it, it spoke to the perennial philosophy, right? To the the fact that there there is one truth underlying everything. You know, we, yeah. religions tend to divide. You know, they tend to have their own little fiefdoms, and um, that can get in the way of spirituality, which is all about connectedness and, and unity. So the book is 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 all about that. It's about the, the true connectedness. We've had enough of division, right? We, yeah. you know, there's enough books written about how I'm better than you. The, the aim of my the aim of my book is to show that we're all in this together. Right. Yeah. No. That's real. That's really beautiful. Um, and you mentioned Yogananda and his writings. And uh, what I would say is that um, when he came to the United States from India, which was in in uh, 1920, obviously Christianity was that was what was practiced here in the United States. And so he spent a lot of his time actually drawing those parallels between yoga philosophy and and uh, Christianity. And as you, right. as you mentioned, that's a lot of that in Autobiography of a, yogi, of a Yogi. There's a lot of that, actually. Many of his writings are really about that. Um, and I would just draw the distinction that what was interesting is like when he came to the United States, he was clear that he was not bringing Hinduism. He was clear he was bringing yoga as a philosophy, as an underlying mm -hmm. Hindu philosophy. And obviously, they're both drawn from, you know, the, the Vedas. Um, but I do think that that's something that is uh, there's kind of a 
an association, you know, of, of, well, yoga must be, you know, Hindu. And certainly Hindu has a yoga, you know, approach. I mean, they're very, very similar. But it was interesting to me that he made that he made that distinction, you know, about, right. you know, yoga philosophy and that Yogacharya and her teachings really always talks about yoga as as a, it's, a, it's a way of, of deeper deepening your understanding of whatever your, you know, your um, historical um, you know, for example, your religion of your family when you grew up, it's a way of deepening your understanding of that, you know, as right, well, exactly. rather than being a new religion that, a you know, new religion changed, of itself, you know. yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's the same with unity, I think, you know, that we, that's why we don't call ourselves a denomination. We're many Catholics, many Baptist people, you know, um, read unity materials, call into our prayer services and etc because they they find worth in it and and charles and myrtle themselves said we you know we, we didn't come here to found a new religion we're we're offering a deeper approach if you like a, a helpful approach to make to make the religion of, of your choice more practical in, in your everyday life and that's what unity is it's a way of life and i think yoga is as well right it's something yes. practice every day right um yeah. to transform consciousness transform your life Right. No, exactly. Exactly. So you obviously have this this podcast, uh, World Spirituality, and you've spent many years exploring the the uh, world's religions. So what was it that piqued your interest in in exploring all of these different ways of of uh, spirituality in the world? Yeah, I've been very blessed to have the show for like 15 years now. I've got 668 shows on archive. Um, you can get to them, you know, on Podbean now, that's the, but it's, they're, they're available, um, you know, on my website and et cetera. But, um, you know, I've always been a mystic. I think I've always been, ever since I can remember, you know, a little bit out there in that sense, a little bit, a little bit different, you know, seeing things beyond just the three dimensional reality of things, you know, and um, some people dismiss that as mumbo jumbo, but, I don't. I, I see it as, uh, you know, go, going, piercing the veil, right, that we live in, the veil of conditioning to, to a larger view of what, what the world is about. And, uh, and so that led me to a, a lifelong journey, you know, as, as many of us have had, um, into trying to understand where do we come from, you know, why am I here, where am I going, what's the purpose, who am I, all these great questions. And, um, and and so, you know, my fascination with that led to me becoming Unity Minister, first of all, and then do, doing this, uh, what was a radio show now morphed into a, a podcast. So it's it's all part of a continuum, I think, of investigation. And, and what I love, of course, is the direct experience of this, not just talking about it, not just writing about it or reading about it. But, but the direct experience of the unitive state, right? This is crucially important because that's what mystics uh, talk about in truth, not mumbo jumbo esotericism, but right. divine connection, divine ex uh, direct experience of what it means to be alive. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it has to be spiritual necessarily, right? Just being present to something really ordinary can be a mystical or spiritual experience because everything ultimately is divine. So... Um, seeing that it within everything is quite revelatory, you know, and um, that fascinates me. Mm -hmm. That was such a great uh, description of, uh, of so many things, but I wanted to just say that for me, mysticism really is that it is about the direct experience. 
And so many people will have a peak experience just in a moment where they are fully present. I think everyone has that in their background where they have had an experience, whether it's seeing a, you know, a baby smile or something, exactly. beautiful, something beautiful in nature where we tap into that oneness and really don't feel separate. Um, that to me is the, the essence of a mystical, a mystical experience. And it can happen in, in ugly things too, or in difficulty, you know, sometimes we want, sort of a picturesque view of mysticism, you know, pretty sunsets or we're falling in love again. But it can also happen in the hard times. It can, it can, you can see it in a, in a trash dump. I know that sounds silly, but every, if everything's imbued with the divine, you know, even the, the ugly can reveal. In fact, sometimes some of the worst things that have happened to us later on, we'll look at them and say, there was divine order here. There, there was an establishment of some breakthrough moment in my distress, you know, you know, there was a, an inkling of what's what's really going on. Uh, that's not to minimize the pain; it still hurts, but but it can reveal so much. You know, what do they say? God's man's extremity is God's opportunity. That's the old cliche, but I think there's some truth to that. You know, to be to be broken open, like Leonard Cohen said, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. I love that Leonard Cohen line. That is a uh, great so line, beautiful. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It reminds me of the uh, the Japanese uh, practice. Was it called uh, kin kinshugi? Where you know, if you take something broken and they mend it. You know, with uh, with right. uh, gold, they put a vein of gold in it. You know, and make it you know make it whole again. I don't know. Just really, really that, beautiful. Wabi sabi too, right? In Japan, it's the same idea. You're watching things decay, not watching things decay, but noticing change. You know. And in, in integrating it, allowing it to be okay, you know, the flower is not just a flower when it when it's in full bloom. It's a flower when it's a bud. It's a flower when it's decaying and and it and it's dormant. So it you know we have to embrace all of it, and and that's the true in our lives as well. You know, it, uh, this endless chasing after youth, for instance, is sad because um, you could be young at heart, but you could still be old. You know, it's okay it's to right. be old. Um, I read the other day that people, the most productive people are between 60 and 70 years old, I think it was. And then the second most productive uh, folks are between 70 and 80. So, <laughs> hey, good news for us. For us some, <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not counting you. You're obviously much younger. But, um, but oh, I don't know my, about that. <laughs> for myself, it was like, oh, good. Like, I'm still, I'm still, you know. We need to honor our elders because elders have a great amount of wisdom, um, you know, that comes from age and, and experience. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a whole again, you know. Yeah. You talk um, in your book about perennial philosophy and the golden thread, which comes right. out of the, the Vedic tradition, as do, do the teachings of yoga. Um, this right. idea that truth is one, the sages speak of it by many names. That's from the that's from the Rig Veda, and yeah. Aldous Huxley wrote a book about this, you know, perennial philosophy. And you, as I mentioned, talk about it in the book. So, would you speak more about um, about perennial philosophy? You know, what is it, and how do you see the the well? How do you see it from the point of view of your book? Well, you know, it is perennial, right? It keeps it keeps growing. It keeps um, showing itself. You know, wherever you go, there it is again. It's perennial. It's within everything. I like to call it the golden thread because uh, you don't see it until you see it. It's it's like a 
um, part of the warp and weft of the fabric, right? It's in there, but you don't see it. And I think spirituality is a bit like that. It's an open secret, right? Um, until you're ready for the truth, you don't see it. Um, and, and, and that's true at, at all levels. You know, might, you might get an experience at certain level, but then you can't see anything further. Deep in your practice, oh, yeah, then I see the next level. Um, so it's the golden thread is, 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 is always there, but it's kind of hidden until you're ready to receive it. Um, and I think that's the nature of the, the spiritual path. So the, this perennial philosophy is always there. And if, you, if you're in a very deep mystical space, you've done a lot of practice on, on oneness, uh, consciousness, then, then you begin to see it everywhere. If, if you're on a surface and, and only see, your, you know, your religion is the best and everybody else is, is going to hell or whatever, you can't see the perennial philosophy. Right? It's, not, it's not apparent to you. There is no golden thread. And that's sad, you know, because um, I think we're all destined to receive that blessing of, of our inherent oneness and togetherness. But our world is still catching up to that. And, you know, we, we're right in the middle of this horrific war in, in Ukraine right now, which speaks to the division and the divisiveness of humanity, you know, and the calculating cruelty of it all. Um, and, and so, you know, our work is to send our consciousness and loving energy and, and sense of oneness, you know, to, to those that are suffering in that, in that terrible war. So, um, you know, this is the conundrum. The Bhagavad Gita, as you're well aware, you know, starts where? It, it, on the battlefields, right? The battlefield. so, yeah. so it's, it's so indicative of our, our human stru struggle and the conditioning that we're in. Right. And, and the, the, the Hinduism does not shy away from this, you know, it directly confronts it, you know, how do I deal with the divisiveness in my life? And, you know, in the Gita, of course, it's, it's family members fighting each other. And, and we're all family, right? We're one human family. Um, but then Krishna, the, the aspect of the Christ or, you know, the God self teaches us how to, you know, maneuver through this difficult conundrum of being alive. In, in a, an apparently dualistic world, and, and, and I love that. So again, that's perennial philosophy coming forth in, in, through that wonderful book, and we see it everywhere. You know, see it in all the great mystics. I've got bunches of mystics that I quote in the book. Um, we see it in the Tao. We see it in 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 all religions. Um, they, they have a mystical part to them. Sufism in 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 Islam, for instance, you know, and. And, and some Muslims just can't stand Sufism because it's, it's, uh, it speaks of love and connectedness and they're into division and, and you know, hate. Um, but, but, you know, love prevails. That's, that's, uh, that's what I've seen in my life. Um, and, you know, eventually love prevails. And um, that, that's what we affirm and then hold fast to, right? So you, as you mentioned, you do give uh, the several examples of notable Christian mystics in your book, which I enjoyed. Um, and these Christian mystics have a deep experience of divine and uh, exemplify what Jesus really taught. I love the poem that that is attributed to St. Teresa of Avila that you offer in the book, which is on page 23. And uh -huh. if we get to just about the midpoint of our conversation, would you go ahead and read that for us? Yeah, there's two poems in there. I'll read, shall I read the first one? Yeah. It says, let nothing perturb you, nothing frighten you, all things pass. God does not change. Patience achieves everything. 
Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. And really, that's what we've just been talking about, isn't it? That love prevails, that the, the divine, you know, has the victory ultimately. And if we can trust that, um, and, and, you know, patience, sometimes we don't like the word patience. So do I have to be patient? But patience means still abiding, right? I'm yeah. still abiding. Um, in Judaism, which I mentioned in the book, um, you know, the dude abides. And uh, this is the, the, in, the, in the Gospels, you know, the, Jesus talks about abiding to abide in me. So this idea of patiently staying the course, mm-hmm. um, no matter what's going on, have that courage and that fortitude and that patience, and and you will succeed if that's your if that's what you're holding in consciousness. So, you know, Saint Teresa speaks to that. Yeah. So, as a reminder, I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yoga Hour, and I'm here today with Reverend Paul John Roach, author of the book we're discussing today, Unity and World Religions. Uh, Paul Roach is the host of the podcast, World Spirituality. You can find out more about Reverend Roach at his website, pauljohnroach.com. You can also follow him on Facebook at Paul John Roach. We will be posting the links to his website on our website, theyogahour.com. So, Paul, I I did want to go back to this idea um, about, uh, about God. And for, for some people, I think they even stumble over that word mm-hmm. <laughs> of, yeah. you know, of, of God, possibly because of the negative experiences that they had in their religion of origin. Absolutely. So um, would you discuss the concept of God uh, and how you teach about it? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I went through that stage in my life where I couldn't even use the word God for many years. It would make me angry, actually. Um, and I was a self-avowed, you know, atheist during my teenage years, which I think was a healthy thing, you know, because we have to rebel against conditioning, right? However, however good our religious upbringing is, we still have to investigate, is it true? You know, there has to be that time in your life where you, you question um, your belief system. And uh, God is, you know, the, the, word, the very name God is, is loaded with baggage, isn't it? And and so is the name Jesus, unfortunately. <laughs> I was going to ask about that next. <laughs> yeah, Jesus comes with a lot of uh, baggage, certainly about the way you should believe about Jesus or about God. So I suggest don't use it if it's not helpful. You know, there are many words that you can use. Um, Paul Tillich uh, said, you know, that you can substitute it for depth. I, I kind of like that, you know. Whatever is deep in your life, whatever resonates, whatever is um, solid, that, that, that is a sense of, of God. Um, you know, you can call it spirit, you know, um, great spirit, uh, the Atman, the Buddha nature, the Tao. Uh, you know, I don't think it matters what name you use, but you're connecting to, again to this, this sense of wholeness, right? The sense of, of oneness that's within everything. I'm very attracted to Mother Nature, and um, for me, God is expresses beautifully in in Mother Nature, right. um, and in Hinduism, you know, it would be Shakti, the the energies of the universe, um, or the the goddess figures. You know, Hinduism's good about that. It allows us to see various aspects of God, um, a multiplicity actually, and take the ones that are meaningful to us, right? 
I'm very into Saraswati right now, um, the goddess of, of writing and music and the, the arts, and, but also of rivers and um, the flow. And, and, and of course, you need the flow when you're writing or, or composing or whatever, playing music. So to me, that that's a beautiful image, you know. And, and, and but for many years, Shiva has been the, the one that I was very attracted to. Um, I've always loved Jesus, but not the Jesus that is sometimes you know promulgated. Um, but but the real Jesus, you know, the, the Zen master Jesus, nobody's fool, um, a really cool guy, you know, that uh, understood these deep truths and and. Uh, lovingly but f fiercely uh, demonstrated them um so you know yeah if, if god doesn't work for you it's not necessary you know um in unity right now there's this move to sort of not use god you know how to pray without talking to god um and i think what they mean by that is to get beyond the old concepts of god outside of ourselves or separate from ourselves or an angry god like the old testament uh, and and find a, a an inner God, imminent presence. Yeah. Um, I do like the idea of a transcendental presence too. I must admit, because I think God is greater than just what's within us. You know, um, I think there's a danger of hubris if we only think of God within us, because we can get a bit arrogant if we're not careful. Mm -hmm. So so we need the humility that comes from a transcendent God. Mm -hmm. But but what you know, God is big enough to contain any concept we might have about god right so it's okay you know um what was it john lennon said god is a concept by which we measure our pain i think for him that might have worked quite well you know but i think god is much more than a concept but um but it's it's interesting what he said because i i can take on board that that idea too um so you know it's it's everything so therefore it's it's okay to Use whatever term is meaningful to you to to connect with that oneness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was that was a really great um, description of I think the stumbling block that people have about God, and oftentimes it's it's a stumbling block about the anthropomorphized God yeah, exactly. um, and the God of vengeance, you know, who will like rain down you know, consign you to hell and that sort of thing. <laughs> Sometimes I'm disgusted, you know, I'll open the Bible at random and I'll come to a piece, usually in the Old Testament, you know, and everybody's being destroyed or he's saying, I hate you all, you're miserable sinners, etc. And it's like, really? Um, you know, is this my holy book? You know, is this my beautiful <laughs> holy book? And so, but then I read a little deeper and I see, oh, well, it's, it's meaning something a little different to that, but my goodness, you know, lit, a literal uh, interpretation can really kind of, right. it's, yeah, drag you down, let's put it like that. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed that part of the book where you talk about that, you know, sort of the separation um, with, uh, well, just Alexandria, you know, and, and, uh, oh, yeah. and Antioch, you know, yeah. and, how, and how, you know, one was more, you, you know, unitive uh, and right. the other was more literal. Uh, that kind of thing. Um, so we did, we have mentioned Jesus. So I did want to come back uh, to that. And the fact that Yogananda did uh, write a lot about, uh, about Christianity in his writing. Mm -hmm. And he, he taught about Christ consciousness, which right. is that awakened consciousness, wherein we know uh, what we are as divine spiritual beings. And he taught, Yogananda taught that this was what Jesus understood about himself and that this is what Jesus taught about in his lifetime. 
However, for many traditional Christians, this is not their understanding <laughs> of Jesus. So would you speak a little bit more about that? Well, that's, that's the, the, the great divide, you know, between the more literal, possibly fundamentalist views of Jesus, um, which are predominating in certain denominations right now, and, and the more um, mystical or unitive understandings of, of, of what Jesus' teachings were about and who Jesus was. And, and unfortunately, there's a huge divide. It's probably the most difficult thing to deal with. You know, um, I have family and, and friends who are, you know, traditional Christians, and, and um, they just don't understand my book. You know, they, they, they feel like I've... Uh, you know, yeah, it's fine, but what about Jesus? You know, are you taking Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And and it's a bit like you see the same kind of fundamentalisms in certain Hindu sects too. Right. Um, you know, there's some sects that believe that Krishna is the ultimate Godhead, and uh, you know, no other gods approach him, and um, and will teach that. So. I think fundamentalism, unfortunately, and, and I, I don't mean it in its nasty sense of, you know, people destroying others, but just fundamental, getting back to those core teachings, um, like like the ones of Jesus is our personal savior. You know, that that that's, that we, we paint ourselves into a corner with that, you know, because then there are no other alternatives, right? And, and this is the problem. Um, with, with that approach, I think, is that it doesn't allow, you know, you have to be the one way. And, and of course, they cite, you know, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, it, it tells you he's the way. And, uh, you know, well, it does seem to say that, except that I am is not the name for Jesus. The I am is the name for the Christ, for the, the God within everything. So the, the Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The presence within you of, of the divine is the way, the truth, and the life. I think Jesus understood that only too well. Um, and, and any Jew would have understood that because if he invoked the words, I am, they would immediately go back to Exodus where, you know, God spoke, I am that I am. Right. So, so um, only in, in modern day do we lose sight of what that significance means. Um, but when I interpret Jesus's teachings from a unity per perspective, they all make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And that would not be the case, I don't think, if if he didn't understand these these um, perennial philosophical ideas. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm very sure that Jesus was directly connected to the one, you know, and everything that he that he did and everything that he said. And if you get back to that, then you, you really understand who Jesus was, I think. So but it, Jesus was not, a yogi, is what you're saying. He was a yogi, he was a Zen master, he was, yes, <laughs> he, he was, uh, was all those things, you know. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I know we've spent a lot of our conversation so far just talking about Christianity because we don't often have someone like you on the show that we can, you know, we can dive into that topic. So I appreciate our conversation so far. And I'd like to turn it a little sure. bit and sure. talk a little bit more about a couple of other religions. So let's start with Hinduism, which we've touched on a, a couple of times. You write right. that Charles Fillmore attended this seminal talk that was given by Swami Vivekananda, the first of the yogis to come to the United States. It was in 1893 at the Parliament of World's Religions. And just give us a little uh, sense of, of if you think that this talk influenced Charles Fillmore's uh, ideas, his development of ideas for unity. 
Oh, very much so. I mean, he was, um, he just founded Unity about four years before that. And so it was right, you know, at the beginning part of um, its unfoldment. And the fact that he would go to something like the Parliament of Religions speaks to his ecumenism, right? Into his idea, his understanding of connectedness. And uh, yeah, I think that was highly influential. Many of his teachings have elements of Hinduism in them. You know, he, he talked about the Holy Spirit, and it sounds like he's talking about the Shakti energies. Mm. Um, uh, and this got more pre uh, prevalent towards the end of his life. It, it didn't change. It didn't um, become less. It got, became more. He was more and more mystical. Um, some of his later books, The Atom, Atom Smashing Power of Mind, um, Jesus Christ Heals. Um, some of those books are full of deep, um, uh, what would you call it? Uh, just pure mysticism, I guess, but, but very deeply connected to, to, to uh, practical, uh, I, is it a conundrum to say practical esotericism? They're sort of esoteric, but he makes it real. It, it, you know, he, he, he takes the, the hidden teachings and, and brings them out into practical ways to live. And that, that's fascinating to me, as, as many gurus do. They, they take a very um, interesting and, and somewhat difficult teaching and make it very um, applicable in everyday life. That's the power of, of uh, what, what these enlightened masters can do, I think. You know, Yogananda certainly did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you talk in the book about the five principles that, that underlie mm -hmm. unity, and we don't have time to go into all of them, but I really appreciated the one that, that really points to it's not enough to understand something, you have to live it. You really right. have to live from that point. And that Absolutely. is the perspective in yoga as well, as you can have a, an insight or a, a you know kind of a um, divine idea, say you're deep in meditation and you really have this sense of, of that uh, oneness, you really have that experience that goes beyond words. And yet the challenge is, so how do you live from that point? How do you, how do you bring that into your life? So I, okay. I really appreciate what you, what you just said. I wanted to turn to Islam and you talk about it as one of the three Abrahamic religions, along with Christianity and Judaism. Um, there's been a lot of misunderstanding in the world about Islam. And yeah. so you explain that link between, um, or just explain how Islam is one of the Abrahamic um, religious traditions. Right, well, just, just as, you know, Christianity came out of Judaism, right? And, um, and, and incorporates the Old Testament as, as part of its scriptures. So in the same way, you know, Mohammed was very interested in both Christianity and Judaism because they were the, some of the predominant religions of his time there in, in, um, in Mecca and Medina where he, he was active. And, and so he was at pains to see some of the connections there and, and understood that, um, you know, that, that all... Uh, all three religions stem from the same root. You know, they come back to the, the great patriarch, Abraham. And uh, now Islam has some different inflections, you know, um, using Ishmael and, and other figures in the Old Testament who were uh, not, not lifted up by the Jews, but are lifted up by, by Muslims. But that's, that's getting into detail there. But, but the basic idea is that he honors those traditions and, and, um, you know, some of the great prophets uh, in in Islam are uh, both 
Christian and Jewish uh, teachers, uh, including Jesus and Abraham, uh, Moses, some others. So, you know, he, he was at pains to see the connection there. I think part of it was expediency because he knew they had to appeal to both Christians and, and Jews as well as, uh, you know, uh, there were a lot of pagans around at that time in, in that part of the, of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, so he was it's almost a syncretic uh, way. He was combining a lot of things together. Um, but, but I also think he saw that there, that there was a noble tradition there that was worthy to, of retaining, you know. And in fact, I love many of the mystical teachings about Jesus that you see in, the, uh, in Islam. You know, there was a great book called The Muslim Jesus that was published a little while ago that, has, that uh, sources 300 quotes about Jesus in Islamic tradition. And they're very profound. Some, many of them are, from, you can find, you know, um, commonalities in the Gospels, but some of them are unique to Islam. Uh, so they had a very fine um, and subtle understanding of Jesus, it, usually in this mystical sense, uh, uh, this practical mystic. And, and so there's a lot in Islam that, you know, we don't get, generally get taught because we're taught that it's, it's a judgmental and, and um, rather aggressive religion. And, and in some ways, and I mentioned this in the book, you know, it's the religion of peace, but it was founded through war. And, and that's part of the conundrum, I think, of, of uh, the Muslim tradition. It, it's, um, it, it's basically about peace because its very name means peace um, and submission to God. And yet it's very aggressive, you know, I mean, after uh, Mohammed, in about 50 years after his death, uh, you know, Islam had conquered all of North Africa into Spain. It was threatening France. It was down into modern-day Iraq and Baghdad. You know, that's that's pretty that's pretty aggressive, right? Um, so it's a conundrum. Islam's definitely a conundrum. Yeah. Well, obviously, if we look at you know at, at any of the religions, I unfortunately think we can point to a lot of uh, a lot of uh, hostility and. Uh, Certainly Christianity. Um, yes, yeah. certainly Christianity. At the top of page 48 in your book, you offer some teachings from the Quran, uh, which is uh, Islam's holy scripture, and and they sound familiar to us. So would you read a couple of those for us, just so you can, we can kind of point to perhaps some of the things that, that people don't think of when they think of Islam? Right. Uh, they're both from the, uh, from the Quran, as you said. The first one says, whichever way you turn, there is the face of God. There is no refuge from God except in him. It is their hearts, not their eyes, that are blind. We belong to God, and to him we shall return. And you see references in, in um, Judaism, you know, the, this, wherever you turn, there's the face of God. In, in Psalm 139, it says, whether can I go from your spirit, you know? You, wherever I go, you're there. So it's, it's, it's similar. And then it says, we created man. We know the promptings of his soul, and we are closer to him than his juggler vein. And again, Jesus said, you know, he knows how many hairs you have on your head, you know. And God is intimately connected with you. So and so it's that intimacy that is, is cool, isn't it? You know, closer to us than our juggler vein, which is, you know, right down, in, I guess, in our neck and heart here. So closer to us than... than um, even some of our own attributes, you know, and, and so that intimacy is powerful. Again, it comes back to practical mysticism, right? That this, the, these, um, these aren't ex uh, difficult to conceive of concepts. 
they are intimately connected to us. We are that, as we'd say in um, in Hinduism, right? We are that divine, um, and it's in everything. It's in our bodies, it's in our souls, it's in our spirits, in our thinking. And to come home to that is just transformative, it's wondrous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We kind of, um, you mentioned, I think, just obliquely Judaism. So let's just have a minute or two there. So uh, you say that the, 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 is it Shema or Shema? Shema, the Shema. Shema yeah. Lays the foundation on which Judaism rests. And, and it's a very short prayer. So would you tell us the words of the prayer and why you'd say that that's the foundation of Judaism? It's page 30. Yeah. Um, well, the Shema it can be found in Deuteronomy um, chapter six, right? I believe, and um, it's it, it's some it's a, it's a prayer that's been um, used now by Jews for thousands of years, and in fact, it begins and ends the prayers. I think the daily prayers and whatnot in in Judaism today. So it's foundational, it's core, and you know, in, in that period uh, when the the Jews were living in the Holy Land and, and other places. Um, it, poly, polytheism was very very prevalent. Um, and in fact, many of the Jews worship different gods, you know. Um, and so this idea of one God, a, a monotheistic God, was, was a new and transformative understanding. And, and I think that so the Shema is all about that, you know. That our, and it says basically, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, or in another translation, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So it's, it's, it speaks to that unitive understanding again, yeah? Uh, it, but it also speaks to the fact that th- this is the one paramount God, you know, the one presence, the one power within everything, not many, many different gods. Um, some people in talking about Hinduism, some people say, oh, Hinduism is polytheistic. You know, they have 33 million gods or whatever. Um, well, not really, because all those gods are aspects of the one, right? Um, you know, God is formless, but takes many forms. And, uh, and so this, this, this concept of oneness is, is so important. And, and the Jews the, were really one of the first religions to lift that up, this, this idea of, of the inherent oneness of God. It's a very important concept, you know, because if God is one everywhere present, then every place we touch is of that one presence, right? And and that's very different to all these many different gods that you know that are you know ones in a tree, ones in a tribe, ones somewhere else. And we, we unfortunately we still have that many gods idea. <laughs> Uh, it's ironic, but I think fundamentalisms tend tend to be more polytheistic than than they they avow to be because they they they've got a separate god. You know, the, uh, we have the one true god. The Muslims don't have the true god. You know, the Hindus don't. And well, how many gods are there? You know, there's only the one god, isn't there? So there, there's there's a you know. It, yeah. You can't. You can't have both. <laughs> Whatever. Right. Anyway, that's a whole different discussion. I'm sorry. Right. I'm no, no. I, I, I love it actually. I, I love the omnipresent. Um, yeah. The idea of an omnipresent yeah. God, because if it's everywhere, then it's everywhere. Right. Exactly. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing outside of it. And so I, and I personally find that to be a very, very reassuring idea that yes. there's that there's no way that I can really be separate from from a God that is everywhere. 
you know, right. and in everything. I, I, I like that idea. Well, you know, your book has so much in it and we, you know, we could have had like so many different conversations about <laughs> it. Uh, we could go on and on. And uh, yet we've come to the end of our, you know, of our, of our yoga hour or almost to the end. So um, would you, uh, in closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? I think as always, you know, it's very efficacious, effective to just simply breathe, you know, to take a load off. Don't take it so seriously. It's okay. However serious it is, you know, breathe, relax and, and enjoy because that, then you can approach anything in a, in a more effective way. Um, and uh, so that's my advice, you know, spend some time just breathing, being present to, to what is. Um, and then go back to the, all our threats and worries. And, and I think you'll find you got new inspiration as a result of that time you spent just taking a load off. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we just forget to do that. We're so busy, we rush from one project to the next and we don't take time just to stop. So to yeah. stop, to breathe, to relax, take a load off uh, and, and enjoy, enjoy yourself. You know, give yourself permission to do something fun. And then return to all the things that, you know, you feel is so crucially important. So that would be my advice to, to anybody. It'd be certainly my advice to myself, you know, because I think I can get overwhelmed with things sometimes, especially in our modern day world, right? Yeah. By the way, the book is um, got a lovely bibliography in it, an index too. So it's it's got a lot of um, ways you can go deeper with some of the ideas if you're interested. And I'd certainly love it if people would buy it. <laughs> of course I would, right? Well, I think, uh, you know, we've given listeners an idea of what's there, you know, and yeah. uh, and I certainly got a lot out of it. So well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for the book. Yeah, um, thank you you've, so much. You've, been, you've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. And my guest today has been Reverend Paul John Roach. He's the author of the book we've been discussing today, Unity and World Religions as well as the host of the long-running podcast, World Spirituality. You can find out more about Reverend Roach's work and his podcast at his website, pauljohnroach.com. A link to his website will also be on our website, theyogahour.com. So thank you so much, Paul, for joining me today on the show. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. For listeners, we hope you will join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Currently, we have daily online meditation in the morning from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. in the afternoon from 4 to 4.30 and on Monday evenings at 7.30. We also offer Sunday satsang at 10 a.m. each week and all these times have been Pacific times. Yogacharya O'Brien is currently offering a satsang series on the five elements. You can listen to the first three of her series on the elements earth, water, and fire by going to Yogacharya's author website, ellengraceobrien.org. This coming Sunday, May 15th, 2022, she will be speaking about the element air. Use your open-hearted healing power. Her talk will be live streamed at 10 a.m. Pacific on csecenter.org. You can learn more about Yogacharya O'Brien and our other online programs at ellengraceobrien.com or csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I will be joined by author and yoga teacher Jeevana Heyman. We will, we will be discussing how we can make real change in the world toward a more just, humane, and democratic future. 
The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. You can subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, producer, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Mm-hmm.